Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's February 3rd, 2020. It's the 11th day of the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump. I'm Margaret Taylor, senior editor at Lawfare. Today, senators listen to the closing arguments of both the House managers and the president's defense team. The House managers made an initial presentation, then the president's defense team took the lectern. House managers then spoke for a final time. Thereafter, the impeachment trial adjourned until 4 p.m. on Wednesday, when senators will cast their votes on whether to convict or acquit the president on each article of impeachment. In the meantime, senators had the opportunity to speak on the Senate floor in 10-minute increments over the course of Monday evening, Tuesday, and Wednesday before the vote. This is the impeachment, episode 11. The parties offer their closing arguments. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silence on pain of imprisonment while the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trials of the articles of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the U.S. Senate, counsel for the President. Almost 170 years ago, Senator Daniel Webster of Massachusetts took to the well of the old Senate chamber, not far from where I'm standing, he delivered what would become perhaps his most famous address, the 7th of March speech. Webster sought to rally his colleagues to adopt the Compromise of 1850, a package of legislation that he and others hoped would forestall a civil war brewing over the question of slavery. He said, it is fortunate that there is a Senate of the United States, a body not yet moved from its propriety not lost to a just sense of its own dignity and its own high responsibilities, and a body to which the country looks with confidence for wise, moderate, patriotic, and healing counsels. It is not to be denied that we live in the midst of strong agitations and are surrounded by very considerable dangers to our institutions of government. The imprisoned winds are let loose, but I have a duty to perform, and I mean to perform it with fidelity, not without a sense of surrounding dangers, but not without hope. Webster was wrong to believe that the Compromise of 1850 could prevent succession of the South, but I hope he was not wrong to put his faith in the Senate. Because the design of the Constitution and the intention of the framers was that the Senate would be a chamber removed from the sway of temporary political winds. In Federalist 65, Hamilton wrote, quote, where else than in the Senate could have been found a tribunal sufficiently dignified or sufficiently independent? What other body would be likely to feel confidence enough in its own situation to preserve, unawed and uninfluenced, the necessary impartiality between an individual accused and the representatives of the people, his accusers? In the same essay, Hamilton explained this about impeachment. The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. 
They are of a nature which may, with peculiar, peculiar propriety, be dominated political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. The prosecution of them, for this reason, will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. In such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. Daniel Webster and Alexander Hamilton placed their hopes in you, the Senate, to be the court of greatest impartiality, to be a neutral representative of the people in determining, uninfluenced by party or pre-existing faction, the innocence or guilt of the President of the United States. Today you have a duty to perform, with fidelity, not without a sense of surrounding dangers, but also not without hope. I submit to you on behalf of the House of Representatives that your duty demands that you convict President Trump. Now, I don't pretend that this is an easy process. It's not designed to be easy. It shouldn't be easy to impeach or convict a president. Impeachment is an extraordinary remedy, a tool only to be used in rare instances of grave misconduct. But it is in the Constitution for a reason. In America, no one is above the law. You've heard arguments from the President's counsel that impeachment would overturn the results of the 2016 election. You have heard that in seeking the removal and disqualification of the President, the House is seeking to interfere in the next election. Senators, neither is true. And these arguments demonstrate a deeply misguided, or I think intentional, effort to mislead about the role that impeachment plays in our democracy. If you believe, as we do, and as we have proven, that the President's efforts to use his official powers to cheat in the 2020 election jeopardize our national security and are antithetical to our democratic tradition, then you must come to no other conclusion that the President threatens the fairness of the next election and risk putting foreign interference between the voters and their ballots. Professor Dershowitz and the other counselors to the President have argued that if the President thinks that something is in his interest, then it is by definition in the interest of the American people. We have said throughout this process that we cannot and should not leave our common sense at the door. The logical conclusion this argument is, is that the President is the state that his interests are the nation's interests, that his will is necessarily ours. You and I and the American people know otherwise. And we do not have to be constitutional scholars to understand that this is a position deeply at odds with our Constitution and our democracy. That believing in this argument or allowing the president to get away with misconduct based on this extreme, extreme view would render him above the law. But we know that this cannot be true. What you decide on these articles will have lasting implications for the future of the presidency, not only for this president, but for all future presidents. Whether or not the office of the presidency of the United States of America is above the law. In May of 1974, Barry Goldwater and other Republican congressional leaders went to the White House to tell President Nixon that it was time for him to resign and that they could no longer hold back the tide of impeachment over Watergate. 
Now, contrary to popular belief, the Republican Party did not abandon Nixon as the Watergate scandal came to light. It took years of disclosures and crisis and court battles. The party stood with Nixon through Watergate because he was a popular conservative president and his base was with him. So they were too. But ultimately, as Goldwater would tell Nixon, quote, there are only so many lies you can take and now there have been one too many. The president would have us believe that he did not withhold aid to course these sham investigations. That his July 25th call with the Ukrainians was perfect. House Manager Val Dennings. The House has presented to you overwhelming and unconverted evidence that President Trump has committed grave abuses of power that harmed our national security and were intended to defraud our elections. President Trump abused the extraordinary powers he alone holds as President of the United States to coerce an ally to interfere in our upcoming presidential election for the benefit of his own re-election. He then used those unique powers to wage an unprecedented campaign to obstruct Congress and cover up his wrongdoing. As the president's scheme to corrupt our election progressed over several months, it became, as one witness described, more insidious. The president and his agents wielded the powers of the presidency and the full weight of the U.S. government to increase pressure on Ukraine's new president to coerce him to announce two sham investigations that would smear his potential election opponent and raise his political standing. By early September of last year, the president's pressure campaign appeared on the verge of succeeding. Until that is, the president got caught and the scheme was exposed. In response, President Trump ordered a massive cover-up, unprecedented in American history. He tried to conceal the facts from Congress, using every tool and legal window dressing he could to block evidence and muzzle witnesses. He tried to prevent the public from learning how he placed himself above country. And yet, even as President Trump has orchestrated this cover-up and obstructed Congress's impeachment inquiry, he remains unapologetic, unrestrained, and intent on continuing his sham to defraud our elections. As I stand here today, delivering the House's closing argument, President Trump's constitutional crimes, his crimes against the American people and the nation, remain in progress. As you make your final determination on the president's guilt, it is therefore worth revisiting the totality of the president's misconduct. Doing so lays bare the ongoing threat President Trump poses to our democratic system of government, both to our upcoming election that some suggest should be the arbiter of the president's misconduct and to the Constitution itself that we all swore to support and defend. Donald Trump was the central player in the corrupt scheme assisted principally by his private attorney, Rudy Giuliani. 
Early in 2019, Giuliani conspired with two corrupt former Ukrainian prosecutors to fabricate and promote phony investigations of wrongdoing by former Vice President Joe Biden, as well as the Russian propaganda that it was Ukraine, not Russia, that hacked the DNC in 2016. In the course of their presentation to you, the President's Council have made several remarkable admissions that affirm core elements of this scheme, including specifically about Giuliani's role and representation of the President. The President's Council has conceded that Giuliani sought to convince Ukraine to investigate the Bidens and alleged Ukraine election interference on behalf of his client, the President, and that the President's focus on these sham investigations was significantly informed by Giuliani, whose views the President adopted. Compounding this damning admission, the President's Council has also conceded that Giuliani was not conducting foreign policy on behalf of the President. They have confirmed that in pursue, pursuing these two investigations, Giuliani was working solely in the President's private personal interest. And the President's personal interest is now clear to cheat in the next election. As Giuliani would later admit for the President's scheme to succeed, he first needed to remove the American ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, an anti-corruption champion Giuliani viewed as an obstacle who, and I quote, was, getting, was going to make the investigations difficult for everybody. Working with now indicted associates, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, Giuliana orchestrated a bogus, months-long smear campaign against the ambassador that culminated in her removal in April. The president's sudden order to remove our ambassador came just three days after Ukraine's presidential election in late April, which saw a reformer, Volodymyr Zelensky, swept into office on an anti-corruption platform. President Trump called to congratulate Zelensky right after his victory. He invited President Zelensky to the White House and agreed to send Vice President Pence to his inauguration. But three weeks later, after Rudy Giuliani was denied a meeting with President Zelensky, President Trump abruptly, abruptly ordered Vice President Pence to cancel his trip. Instead, a lower-level delegation led by three of President Trump's political appointees, Secretary of Energy Rick Perry, Ambassador to the European Union Gordon Sondland, and Special Representative for Ukraine Negotiations Kurt Volker, attended Zelensky's inauguration the following week. These three returned from Ukraine impressed with President Zelensky. In a meeting shortly thereafter with President Trump in the Oval Office, they relayed their positive impression of the new Ukrainian president and encouraged President Trump to schedule the White House meeting he promised in his first call. But President Trump reacted negatively. He railed that Ukraine tried to take me down in 2016. And in order to schedule a White House visit, for President Zelensky, President Trump told the delegation that they would have to, and I quote, 
talk to Rudy. It is worth pausing here to consider the importance of this meeting in late May. This is the moment that President Trump successfully hijacked the tools of our government to serve his corrupt personal interests. When the president's domestic political errand, as one witness famously described it, began to overtake and subordinate U.S. foreign policy and national security interests. By this point in the scheme, Rudy Giuliani was advocating very publicly for Ukraine to pursue the two sham investigations. But his request to meet with President Zelensky was rebuffed by the new Ukrainian president. According to reports about Ambassador Bolton's account, soon to be available, if not to this body, then to bookstores near you, appointees made clear to Ukraine that a meeting at the White House would only be scheduled if Ukraine announced the sham investigations. According to a July 19 email, the White House has tried to suppress this drug deal, as Ambassador Bolton called it, was well known among the president's most senior officials, including his chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, and Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. And it was relayed directly to senior Ukrainian officials by Gordon Sondland on July 10 at the White House. Everyone was in the loop. The evidence is unequivocal. Despite this pressure, by mid-August, President Zelensky resisted such an explicit announcement of the two politically motivated investigations desired by President Trump. As a result, the White House meeting remained unscheduled, just as it remains unscheduled to this day. During this same time frame in August, the President persisted in maintaining the hold on the aid despite warnings that he was breaking the law by doing so, as an independent watchdog recently confirmed that he did. According to the evidence presented to you, the president's entire cabinet believed he should release the aid because it was in the national security interests of our country. Ambassador Sondland testified that the only logical conclusion was that the president was also withholding military assistance to increase the pressure on Ukraine to announce the investigations. As Sondland and another witness testified, this conclusion was as simple as two plus two equals four. If the White House meeting wasn't sufficient leverage to extract the announcements he wanted, Trump would use the frozen aid as his hammer. Secretary Pompeo confirmed Sondland's conclusion in an August 22 email. It was also clear that Vice President Pence was aware of the quid pro quo over the aid and was directly informed of such in Warsaw on September 1, after the freeze had become public and Ukraine became desperate. This is an important point. The president claims that Ukraine did not know of the freeze in aid, though we know this to be false. As the former deputy foreign minister has admitted publicly, they found out about it within days of the July 25th call and kept it quiet. 
But no one can dispute that even after the hole became public on, July, on August 28, President Trump's representatives continued their efforts to secure Ukraine's announcement of the investigations. This is enough to prove extortion in court, and it is certainly enough to prove it here. If that wasn't enough, however, on September 7, more than a week after the aid freeze became public, President Trump confirmed directly to Sondland that he wanted President Zelensky in a public box and that his release of the aid was conditioned on the announcement of the two sham investigations. Having received direct confirmation from President Trump, Sondland relayed the president's message to President Zelensky himself. President Zelensky could resist no longer. America's military assistant makes up 10% of his country's defense budget. And President Trump's visible lack of support for Ukraine harmed his leverage in negotiations with Russia. President Zelensky affirmed to Sondland on that same telephone call that he would announce the investigations in an interview on CNN. President Trump's pressure campaign appeared to have succeeded. Two days after President Zelensky confirmed his intention to meet President Trump's demands, the House of Representatives announced its investigation into these very issues. Shortly thereafter, the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community notified the intelligence communities that the whistleblower complaint was being improperly handled or with improperly withheld from Congress with the White House knowledge. In other words, the president got caught. And two days later, on September 11, the president released the aid. To this day, however, Ukraine still has not received all of the money Congress has appropriated, and the White House meeting has yet to be scheduled. The identity of the whistleblower, moreover, is irrelevant. The House did not rely on the whistleblower's complaint, even as it turned out to be remarkably accurate. It does not matter who initially sounded the alarm when they saw smoke. What matters is that the firefighters, Congress, were summoned and found the blaze. And we know that we did. The facts about the president's misconduct are not seriously in dispute, as several Republican senators have acknowledged publicly. President Trump weaponized our government and the vast powers entrusted to him by the American people and the Constitution to target his political rival and corrupt our precious elections, subverted our national security and our democracy in the process. He put his personal interests over those of the country, and he violated his oath of office in the process. But the president's grave abuse of power did not end there. In conduct unparalleled, 
in American history. Once he got caught, President Trump engaged in categorical and indiscriminate obstruction of any investigation into his wrongdoing. He ordered every government agency and every official to defy the House's impeachment inquiry. And he did so for a simple reason, to conceal evidence of his wrongdoing from Congress and the American people. The president's obstruction was unlawful and unprecedented, but it also confirmed his guilt. Innocent people don't try to hide every document and witness, especially those that would clear them. But it would be a mistake to view the president's obstruction narrowly as the president's counsel have tried to portray it. The president did not defy the House's impeachment inquiry as part of a routine interbranch dispute or because he wanted to protect the constitutional rights and privileges of his presidency. He did it consistent with his vow to fight all subpoenas. The second article of impeachment goes to the heart of our Constitution and our democratic system of government. The framers of the Constitution purposefully entrusted the power of impeachment in the legislative branch so that it may protect the American people from a corrupt president. The president's counsel offered bad faith and meritless legal arguments as transparent legal window dressing intended to legitimize and justify the president's efforts to hide evidence of his misconduct. We've explained why all of these legal excuses hold no merit. The president's argument is as shameless as it is hypocritical. The president's counsel is arguing in this trial that the House should have gone to court to enforce its subpoenas, while at the same time, the president's own Department of Justice is arguing in court that the House cannot enforce the subpoenas through the courts. And you know what remedy they say in court is available to the House? Impeachment for obstruction of Congress. This is not the first time this argument has been made. President Nixon made it too, but it was roundly rejected by the House Judiciary Committee 45 years ago. When the committee passed an article for obstruction of Congress for far less serious obstruction than we have here, the committee concluded that it was inappropriate to enforce its subpoenas in court. This conclusion is based on the constitutional provision vesting the power of impeachment solely in the House of Representatives and the express denial by the framers of the Constitution of any role for the courts in the impeachment process. House Manager Hakeem Jeffries. Once we strip the president's obstruction of this legal window dressing, the consequences are as clear as they are dire for our democracy. 
to condone the president's obstruction would strike a death blow to the impeachment clause in the Constitution. And if Congress cannot enforce this sole power vested in both chambers alone, the Constitution's final line of defense against a corrupt presidency will be eviscerated. A president who can obstruct and thwart the impeachment power becomes unaccountable. He or she is effectively above the law. And such a president is more likely to engage in corruption with impunity. This will become the new normal with this president and for future generations. So where does this leave us? As many of you in this chamber have publicly acknowledged in the past few days, the facts are not seriously in dispute. We have proved that the president committed grave offenses against the Constitution. The question that remains is whether that conduct warrants conviction and removal from office. Should the Senate simply accept or even condone such corrupt conduct by a president? Absent conviction and removal, how can we be assured that this president will not do it again? If we are to rely on the next election to judge the president's efforts to cheat in that election, how can we know that the election will be free and fair? How can we know that every vote will be free from foreign interference solicited by the president himself? With President Trump, the past is prolonged. This is neither the first time that the president solicited foreign interference in his own election, nor is it the first time that the president tried to obstruct an investigation into his misconduct. But you will determine, you will determine, you will determine whether it will be his last. As we speak, the president continues his wrongdoing unchecked and unashamed. Donald Trump hasn't stopped trying to pressure Ukraine to smear his opponent, nor has he stopped obstructing Congress. His political agent, Rudolph Giuliani, recently returned to the scene of the crime in Ukraine to manufacture more dirt for his client, the President of the United States. President Trump remains a clear and present danger to our national security and to our credibility around the world. He is decimating our global standing as a beacon of democracy while corrupting our free and fair elections here at home. What is a greater protection to our country than ensuring that we, the American people, alone, not some foreign power, choose our commander-in-chief? The American people alone should decide who represents us in any office without foreign interference, particularly the highest office in the land. And what could undermine our national security more than to withhold from a foreign ally 
fighting a hot war against our adversary. Hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid to buy sniper rifles, rocket-propelled grenade launchers, radar and night vision goggles so that they may fight the war over there, keeping us safe here. If we allow the president's misconduct to stand, what message do we send? What message do we send to Russia, our adversary, intent on fracturing democracy around the world? What will we say to our European allies already concerned with this president about whether the United States will continue to support our NATO commitments that have been a pillar of our foreign policy since World War II? What message do we send to our allies in the free world? The Ukrainians and the Europeans and the Americans around the world and here at home are watching what we do. They are watching to see what the Senate will do. And they are relying on this distinguished body to be constant to the principles America was founded on and which we've tried to uphold for more than 240 years. Doing the right thing and being constant to our principles requires a level of moral courage that is difficult, but by no means impossible. It is that moral courage shown by public servants throughout this country and throughout the impeachment inquiry in the House. No matter what happens today or from this day forward, that courage mattered. Whatever the outcome in this trial, we will remain vigilant in the House. I know there are dedicated public servants who know the difference between right and wrong. But make no mistake, these are perilous times. If we determine that the remedy for a president who cheats in an election is to pronounce him vindicated and attack those who exposed his misconduct. House Manager Adam Schiff. Senators, before we break, I want to take a moment to say something about the staff who have worked tirelessly on the impeachment inquiry and this trial for months now. There is a small army of public servants down the hall from this chamber in offices throughout the House, and yes, in that windowless bunker in the Capitol, who have committed their lives to this effort because they, like the managers and the American people, believe that a president free of accountability is a danger to the beating heart of our democracy. I'm grateful to all of them. Some of those staff, including some singled out in this chamber, have been made to endure the most vicious false attacks to the point where they feel their lives have been put at risk. The attacks on them degrade our institution and all who serve in it. You have asked me why I hired certain of my staff, and I will tell you, because they're brilliant, 
hardworking, patriotic, and the best people for the job. And they deserve better than the attacks they have been forced to suffer. Members of the Senate, Mr. Chief Justice, I want to close this portion of our statement by reading you the words of our dear friend and former colleague in the House, the late Elijah Cummings, who said this on the day that the Speaker announced the beginning of the impeachment inquiry. As elected representatives, he said, of the American people, we speak not only for those who are here with us now, but for generations yet unborn. Our voices today are messages to a future we may never see. When the history books are written about this tumultuous era, I want them to show that I was among those in the House of Representatives who stood up to lawlessness and tyranny. We, the managers, are not here representing ourselves alone or even just the House. Just as you are not here making a determination as the President's guilt or innocence for yourselves alone. Now, you and we represent the American people, the ones at home and at work who are hoping that their country will remain what it has always believed it to be, a beacon of hope, of democracy, and of inspiration to those striving around the world to create their own more perfect unions, for those who are standing up to lawlessness and to tyranny. Donald Trump has betrayed his oath to protect and defend the Constitution, but it is not too late for us to honor ours, to wield our power to defend our democracy. As President Abraham Lincoln said at the close of his Cooper Union Address on February 27, 1860, neither let us be slandered by, from our duty by false accusations against us, nor frightened from it by menaces of destruction to the government, nor of dungeons to ourselves. Let us have faith that right makes might, and in that faith let us, to the end, dare to do our duty as we understand it. Today we urge you in the face of overwhelming evidence of the President's guilt and knowing that if left in office he will continue to seek foreign interference in the next election, devote to convict on both articles of impeachment and to remove from office Donald J. Trump, the 45th President of the United States. Mr. Chief Justice, we reserve the balance of our time. The Chief Justice moves for arguments from the White House Counsel. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, Majority Leader McConnell, Democratic Leader Schumer, Senators. Thank you very much on behalf of all of us for your continued attention. Today we are going to complete our argument and finish our closing argument. We will complete that in a very efficient period of time. You, you understand the arguments that we've been making. And at the end of the day, the key conclusion, we believe the only conclusion based on the evidence and based on the articles of impeachment themselves and the Constitution, is that you must vote to acquit the President. At the end of the day, this is an effort to overturn the results of one election and to try to interfere in the coming election that begins today in Iowa. And we believe that the only proper result, if we're applying the golden rule of impeachment, if we're applying the rules of impeachment that were so eloquently stated by members of the Democratic Party the last time we were here, the only appropriate result here is to acquit the President and to leave it to the voters to choose their president. With that, I'll turn it over to Judge Ken Starr. As you begin your deliberations, have the facts as presented to you 
as a court, as the high court of impeachment, proven trustworthy? Has there been full and fair disclosure in the course of these proceedings? Fundamental fairness. I recall these words from the podium last week. A point would be made by one of the president's lawyers, and then this would follow. The house managers didn't tell you that. Why not? And again, the house managers didn't tell you that. Why not? At the Justice Department on the fifth floor of the Robert F. Kennedy Building is this simple inscription. The United States wins its point when justice is done its citizens in the courts. Not did we win, not did we convict, rather the moral question was justice done. Of course, as has been said frequently, the House of Representatives does, under our Constitution, enjoy the sole power of impeachment. No one has disputed that fact. They've got the power. But that doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mean that the House cannot be called to account in the High Court of Impeachment for its actions in exercising that power. A question to be asked, are we to countenance violations of the rules and traditional procedures that have been followed scrupulously in prior impeachment proceedings? And the Judiciary Committee, the venerable Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives, Compare and contrast the thoroughness of that committee in the age of Nixon, its thoroughness in the age of Clinton with all of its divisiveness within the committee in this proceeding. A question to be asked. Did the House Judiciary Committee rush to judgment in fashioning the articles of impeachment? Did it cath carefully gather the facts, assess the facts, before it concluded, we need nothing more than the panel of very distinguished professors and the splendid presentations by both the majority council and the minority council. We asked them questions. The Republicans asked them questions. We heard their answers. We're ready to vote. We're ready to try this case in the High Court of Impeachment. What was being said in the sounds of silence was this. We don't have time to follow the rules. The House's sole power to impeach is likewise ultimately a power to persuade over in the House. A question to be asked. In the fast-track impeachment process in the House of Representatives, the House majority persuade the American people. Not just partisans. Rather, did the House's case win over the overwhelming majority of consensus of the American people? The question fairly to be asked. Will I cast my vote to convict 
and remove the President of the United States when not a single member of the President's party, the party of Lincoln, was persuaded at any time in the process. In contrast, and when I was here last week, I noted for the record of these proceedings that in the Nixon impeachment, the House vote to authorize the impeachment inquiry was 410 to 4. And the Clinton impeachment, divisive, controversial, 31 Democrats voted in favor of the impeachment inquiry. Here, of course, and in sharp contrast, the answer is none. It is said that we live in highly and perhaps hopelessly partisan times. It is said that no one is open to persuasion anymore. They're getting their news entirely from their favorite media platform. And that platform of choice is fatally deterministic. There are a number of reasons why the articles of impeachment are deficient and must fail. My colleagues have spent the past week describing those reasons. In my time today, I'd like to review just a few core facts which again, remember, are all drawn from the record on which the President was impeached in the House and that the House managers brought to this body in support of the President's removal. First, the President did not condition security assistance or a meeting on anything during the July 25 call. In fact, both Ambassador Yovanovitch and Mr. Tim Morrison confirmed that the Javelin missiles and the security assistance were completely unrelated. The concerns that Lieutenant Colonel Vindman expressed on the call were, by his own words and admission, based on deep policy concerns. And remember, as we said before, and everyone in this room knows, the President sets the foreign policy. The unelected staff implements the foreign policy. Others on the call, including Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's boss, Mr. Morrison, as well as Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, had no such concerns and have stated that they have heard nothing improper, unlawful, or otherwise troubling on the July 25 call. Second, President Zelensky and his top advisors agreed that there was nothing wrong with the July 25 call and that they felt no pressure from President Trump. President Zelensky said that the call was good, normal, and no one pushed me. President Zelensky's top advisor, Andrei Yermak, was asked if he had ever felt there was a connection between the U.S. military aid and the requests for investigations. He was adamant that we never had that feeling and we did not have the feeling that this aid was connected to any one specific issue. Alexander Daniluk, former chairman of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, said he first found out that the U.S. was withholding aid to Ukraine by reading Politico's article published August 28. Mr. Daniluk also said there was panic within the Zelensky administration when they found out about the hold from the Politico article, indicating that the highest levels of the administration were unaware of the pause until the article was published. 
And if that's not enough, Ambassador Volker, Ambassador Taylor, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent, and Mr. Morrison all also testified that the Ukrainians did not know about the security hold until the Politico article on August 28. And we showed you the text message from Mr. Yermak to Ambassador Volker just hours after the Politico article was published. The House managers also mentioned Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who claimed to have vague recollections of fielding unspecified queries about aid from Ukrainians in the mid-August time frame. But Lieutenant Colonel Vindman ultimately agreed that the Ukrainians first learned about the hold on security assistance probably around when the first stories emerged in the open source. And former Deputy Foreign Minister Olena Zerkal's claim that she knew about the pause in July is inconsistent. None of the House witnesses testified that President Trump ever said there was any linkage between security assistance and investigations. When Ambassador Sondland asked the President on approximately September 9, the President told him, I want nothing. I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. Even earlier, on August 31, Senator Ron Johnson asked the President if there was any connection between security assistance and investigations. The President answered, no way, I would never do that. Who told you that? Under Secretary of State David Hale, Mr. Kent, and Ambassador Volker all testified that they were not aware of any connection whatsoever between security assistance and investigations. The House managers repeatedly point to a statement by Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney during an October press conference. When it became clear that the media was misinterpreting his comments or that he had simply misspoken, Mr. Mulvaney promptly, on the very day of the press conference, issued a written statement making clear that there was no quid pro quo. Fifth, the security assistance was released when the President's concerns with burden sharing and corruption were addressed by a number of people, including some in this chamber today, without Ukraine ever announcing or undertaking any investigations. You have heard repeatedly that no one in the administration knew why the security assistance was paused. That's not true. Two of the House manager's own witnesses testified regarding the reason for the pause. As Mr. Morrison testified, at a July meeting attended by officials throughout the executive branch agencies, the reason provided for the pause by a representative from the Office of Management and Budget was that the President was concerned about corruption in Ukraine, and he wanted to make sure that Ukraine was doing enough to manage that corruption. Further, let me turn very briefly to the claim that a presidential meeting was also conditioned on investigations. Remember, by the end of the July 25 call, President Trump had personally invited President Zelensky to meet three times, twice by phone, once in a letter, without any preconditions. You heard that the White House was working behind the scenes to schedule the meeting and how difficult scheduling those meetings can be. The two presidents planned to meet in Warsaw, just as President Zelensky requested on the July 25 call. President Trump had to cancel at the last minute due to Hurricane Dorian. President Trump and President Zelensky then met three weeks later in New York without Ukraine announcing any investigations. Finally, one thing that the House managers' witnesses agreed upon was that President Trump has strengthened the relationship between the U.S. and Ukraine, and that he has been a better friend to Ukraine 
and stronger opponent of Russian aggression than President Obama. In sum, the House manager's case is not overwhelming, and it is not undisputed. The House managers bear the very heavy burden of proof. They did not meet it. It's not because they didn't get the additional witnesses or documents that they failed to pursue. It's because their own witnesses have already offered substantial evidence undermining their case. And importantly, as you have heard from Professor Dershowitz and from Mr. Philbin, the first article does not support or allege an impeachable offense regardless of any additional witnesses or documents. Members of the Senate. President's Attorney Jay Sekulow. Mr. Chief Justice, Majority Leader McConnell, Democratic Leader Schumer, House Managers. I want to join my colleagues in thanking you for your patience over these two weeks. I want to focus on one last point. We believe that we have established overwhelmingly that both articles of impeachment fail to allege impeachable offenses and that, therefore, both articles, one and two, must fail. This entire campaign of impeachment that started from the very first day that the President was inaugurated was a partisan one, and it should never happen again. For three years, this push for impeachment came straight from the President's opponents, and when it finally reached a crescendo, it put this body, the United States Senate, into a horrible position. What the House managers have forced upon this great body is unprecedented and unacceptable. This is exactly and precisely what the founders feared. This was the first totally partisan presidential impeachment in our nation's history, and it should be our last. They have cheapened the awesome power of impeachment, and unfortunately, of course, the country is not better for that. We urge this body to dispense with these partisan articles of impeachment for the sake of the nation, for the sake of the Constitution. As we have demonstrably proved, the articles are flawed on their face. They were a product of a reckless impeachment inquiry that violated all notions of due process and fundamental fairness. And then incredibly, incredibly, when these articles were finally brought to this chamber, without a single Republican vote, the managers then claimed that now, now they need more process. Now they need more witnesses. That all of the witnesses that they compiled and all the testimony that you heard was not enough. That your job was to do their job, the one, frankly, they failed to do. We've already said many times the charges themselves do not allege a crime or a misdemeanor, let alone a high crime or a misdemeanor. There is nothing in the charges that could permit the removal of a duly elected president or warrant the negation of an election and the subversion of the American people's will. And that should be whatever party you're affiliated with. To be clear, in our country, in the United States, the president elected by the American people 
is, in the words of the Supreme Court, the sole organ of the federal government in the field of international relations and foreign policy for our government. No unelected bureaucrats, not unhappy members of the House of Representatives, and however you were to define high crimes and misdemeanors, there is no definition that includes disagreeing with a policy decision as an acceptable ground to removal of a President of the United States. None. The first article for, of impeachment is therefore constitutionally invalid and should be immediately rejected by the Senate. Now as to the second article of impeachment, President Trump in no way obstructed Congress. The President acted with extraordinary transparency by declassifying releasing the transcript of the July 25th call and the earlier call. It is that July 25th call which is purportedly at the heart of the articles of impeachment. The assertion of valid constitutional privileges cannot be an impeachable offense. And that's what Article 2 is based on, the obstruction of Congress. For the sake of the Constitution, for the sake of the office of the President, this body must stand as a steady bulwark against this reckless and dangerous proposition. It doesn't just affect this President. It affects every man or woman who occupies that high office. So as we said with the first article of impeachment, we believe the second article of impeachment is invalid. It should also be rejected. In passing the first article of impeachment, the House attempted to usurp the President's constitutional power to determine policy, especially foreign policy. By approving both articles, the House of Representatives violated our constitutional order, illegally abused their power of impeachment in order to obstruct the President's ability to faithfully execute the duties of his office. These articles fail on their face as they do not meet the constitutional standard for impeachable offenses. No amount of testimony could change that fact. Stand firm today and protect the will of the American people and their vote. Stand firm today and protect our nation. And I ask that this partisan impeachment come to an end to restore our constitutional balance. For that is, in my view and in our view, what justice demands and the Constitution requires. I will leave you with just a few brief points. First, I want to express on behalf of our entire team our gratitude. Our gratitude to you, Mr. Chief Justice, for presiding over this trial. Our gratitude to you, Leader McConnell. Our gratitude to you, Democratic Leader Schumer, and all of you on both sides of the aisle for your time and attention. I also want to express our gra my gratitude to our team. I want to thank, as members of that team, the Republican members of the House of Representatives who have also been engaged in that effort throughout this entire, entire period of time. I would make just a couple of additional points. Number one, as we've said repeatedly, we've never been in a situation like this in our history. We have a bite, a, a, an impeachment that is purely partisan and political. It's opposed by, by, by bipartisan members of the House. It does not even allege a violation of law. It is passed in an election year, and we're sitting here on the day that election season begins in Iowa. It is wrong. There is only one answer to that. 
And the answer is to reject those articles of impeachment, to have confidence in the American people, to have confidence in the result of the upcoming election, to have confidence and respect for the last election and not throw it out, and to leave point number two. I believe the American people are tired of the endless investigations and false investigations that have been coming out of the House from the beginning, as my colleague, uh, Mr. Sekulow, pointed out. It is a waste of tax dollars. It is a waste of the American people's time. And I would argue, more importantly, most importantly, the opportunity cost of that, the opportunity cost of that, what you could be doing, what the House could be doing, working with the President, He's achieved successful results in the economy and across so many other areas, working with you on both sides of the aisle, and he wants to continue to do that. And that's what I believe the American people want those of you elected to come here to Washington to focus on, to spend your time on, to unify us, as opposed to the bitter division that's caused by these types of proceedings on behalf of the President. I come here today to ask you, reject these articles of impeachment. Reject these articles of impeachment. I thank you for granting us the permission to appear here in the Senate on behalf of this President. And I ask you, on his behalf, on behalf of the American people, to reject these articles. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice and Senators, it's a problem that here at the end of the trial, the President's lawyers still dispute the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors. Some say it requires an ordinary crime or that if the President misbehaves when he thinks it's good for the country, it's okay. Neither is correct. We need to clear this up by looking at what the Founders said. When the Founders created the Presidency, they gave the President great power. They'd just been through a war to get rid of a king with too much power, and they needed a check on the great power given to the president. It was late in the Constitutional Convention that they turned to the impeachment clause. Madison argued in favor of impeachment. He said it was indispensable. Mason asked, quote, shall any man be above justice? Above all, shall that man be above it who can commit the most extensive injustice? Randolph defended the propriety of impeachment since, quote, the executive will have great opportunity of abusing his power. Now, the original draft of the Constitution provided for impeachment only for treason or bribery. Mason asked, quote, why is the provision restrained to treason and bribery only? Treason, as defined in the Constitution, will not reach many great and dangerous offenses, and he added, Hastings is not guilty of treason. Attempts to subvert the Constitution might not be treason as defined. Now, Hastings' impeachment in Britain at this time was well known, and it wasn't limited to a crime. They considered adding the word maladministration to capture abuse of presidential power, but Madison objected. He said so vague a term would be equivalent to tenure during the pleasure of the Senate. So maladministration was withdrawn and replaced with the more certain term, high crimes and misdemeanors, because the founders knew the law. 
Blackstone's commentaries, which Madison said was a book in every man's hand, described high crimes and misdemeanors as offenses against king and government. Hamilton called high crimes and misdemeanors, quote, those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. During ratification, Randolph in Virginia cited the president's receipt of presents or emoluments from a foreign power as an example. And Mason's example was a president who would, quote, pardon crimes which were advised by himself or before indictment or conviction, quote, to stop inquiry and prevent detention, uh, detection. It's clear they knew what they wrote. The president's lawyers tried to create a muddle to confuse you. Don't let them. High crimes and misdemeanors mean abuse of power against the constitutional order, conduct that is corrupt, whether or not a crime. Now, some say no impeachment when there's an election coming, but without term limits, when they wrote the Constitution, there was always an election coming. If impeachment in election years was not to be, our founders would have said so. The facts are clear, and so is the Constitution. The only question is what you, the Senate, will do. Now, our founders created a government where the tension between the three branches would prevent authoritarianism. No one of the branches would be allowed to grab all the power. Impeachment was to make sure the president, who had the greatest opportunity to grab power, would be held in check. It's a blunt instrument, but it's what our founders gave us. Some of the founders thought the mere existence of the impeachment clause would prevent misconduct by presidents, but sadly, they were wrong, because twice in the last half century, a president corruptly used his power to try to cheat in an election. House Manager Sylvia Garcia. The American people will have to live with the decisions made in this chamber. In fact, senators, I believe that the decision in this case will affect the strength of democracies around the world. Democracy is a gift that each generation gives to the next one. If we say that this president can put his own interests above all else, even when lives are at stake, then we give our nation's children a weaker democracy than we inherited from those that came before us. The next generation deserves better. They are counting on us. I have given this president the benefit of the doubt from the beginning. Despite my strong opposition to so many of his policies, I know that the success of our nation depends on the success of our leader. But he has let us down. Senators, we know what the president did and why he did it. This fact is seriously not in doubt. Senators on both sides of the aisle have said as much. The question for you now is, does it warrant removal from office? We say yes. We cannot simply hope that this president will realize that he has done wrong or inappropriate and hope that he does better. What President Trump did this time pierces the heart 
of who we are as a country. We must stop him from further harming our democracy. We must stop him from further betraying his oath. We must stop him from tearing up our Constitution. He deserves to be removed for taking the very actions that the framers feared would undermine our country. The framers designed impeachment for this very case. House Manager Val Dennings. This is a defining moment in our history and a challenging time for our nation. A thousand things have gone through my mind since this body voted to not call witnesses in this trial. The vote was unprecedented. The president's former national security advisor indicated that he was willing to testify under oath before the Senate, yet this body did not want to hear what he had to say. The president's lawyers have asked you to not believe your lying eyes and ears, to reinterpret the Constitution, and to believe that if the president thinks his re-election is in our national interest, then he can do whatever he wants, anything, to make it happen. And that's exactly what he was attempting to do anything when he illegally held much-needed military aid while pressuring Ukraine's president to announce bogus investigations into his most feared political rival. This trial is about abuse of power, obstruction, breaking the law, and our system of checks and balances. And since we are talking about the President of the United States, this trial is also most certainly about character. If this body fails to hold this President accountable, you must ask yourselves what kind of republic will we ultimately have with a president who thinks that he can really, truly do whatever he wants. You will send a terrible message to the nation that one can get away with abuse of power, obstruction, cheating, and spreading false narratives if you simply know the right people. Well, today, Senators, I reject that because we are a nation of laws. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States, said this, America will never be destroyed from outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we chose to destroy ourselves. I urge you, Senators, to vote to convict and remove this president. Thank you so much for your time. House Manager Hakeem Jeffries. House managers have proven our case against President Trump with a mountain of evidence. If the Senate chooses to acquit, 
under these circumstances, then America is in the wilderness. If the Senate chooses to normalize lawlessness, if the Senate chooses to normalize corruption, if the Senate chooses to normalize presidential abuse of power, then America is in the wilderness. If the Senate chooses to acquit President Trump without issuing a single subpoena, without interviewing a single witness, without reviewing a single new document, then America is truly in the wilderness. But all is not lost, even at this late hour. The Senate can still do the right thing. America is watching. The world is watching. The eyes of history are watching. House Manager Adam Schiff. Mr. Chief Justice, uh, I want to begin by thanking you for the distinguished way you have presided over these proceedings. Senators, we are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. If Lincoln could speak these words during the Civil War, surely we can live them now and overcome our divisions and our animosities. It is midnight in Washington. The lights are finally going out in the Capitol after a long day in the impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump. The Senate heard arguments only hours earlier on whether to call witnesses and require the administration to release documents it has withheld. Counsel for the President still maintains the President's innocence while opposing any additional evidence that would prove otherwise. It is midnight in Washington. But on this night, not all the lights have been extinguished. Somewhere in the bowels of the Justice Department, Donald Trump's Justice Department, a light remains on. Someone has waited until the country is asleep to hit send to inform the court in a filing due that day that the Justice Department, the department that would represent justice, is refusing to produce documents directly bearing on the President's decision to withhold military aid from Ukraine. The Trump administration has them, it is not turning them over, and it does not want the Senate to know until it is too late. Send. That's what happened last Friday night. When you left home for the weekend, in a replay of the duplicity we saw during the trial, when the President's lawyers argued here that the House must go to court and argued in court that the House must come here, they were at it again, telling the court in a midnight filing that it would not turn over relevant documents even as they argued here that they were not covering up the President's misdeeds. Midnight in Washington. All too tragic, a metaphor for where the country finds itself at the conclusion of the only the third impeachment in history and the first impeachment trial without witnesses or documents, the first such trial or non-trial in impeachment history. Having failed to persuade this Senate or the public that there was no quid pro quo, having offered no evidence to contradict the record, the President's team opted in a kind of desperation for a different kind of defense. First, prevent the Senate and the public from hearing from witnesses with the most damning accounts of the President's misconduct. And second, fall back on a theory of presidential power so broad 
and unaccountable that it would allow any occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania to be as corrupt as he chooses while the Congress is powerless to do anything about it. That defense collapsed of its own dead weight. Presidents may abuse their power with impunity, they argued. Abuse of power is not a constitutional crime, they claimed. Only statutory crime is a constitutional crime, even though there were no statutory crimes when the Constitution was adopted. The president had to look far and wide to find a de defense lawyer to make such an argument, unsupported by history, the founders, or common sense. The Republican expert witness in the House would not make it. Serious constitutional scholars would not make it. Even Alan Dershowitz would not make it. At least he wouldn't in 1998. But this has become the president's defense. And yet, this defense proved indefensible. If abuse of power is not impeachable, even though it is clear the founders considered the highest of all high crimes and misdemeanors, but if it were not impeachable, then a whole range of utterly unacceptable conduct in a president would now be beyond reach. Trump could offer Alaska to the Russians in exchange for support in the next election, or decide to move to Mar-a-Lago permanently and let Jared Kushner run the country, delegating to him the decision whether to go to war. Because those things are not necessarily criminal, this argument would allow that he could not be impeached for such abuses of power. Of course, this would be absurd. More than absurd, it would be dangerous. And so Mr. Dershowitz tried to embellish his legal creation and distinguish among those abuses of power which would be impeachable from those which wouldn't. Abuses of power that would help the president get reelected were permissible and therefore unimpeachable, and only those for pecuniary gain were beyond the pale. Under this theory, as long as the president believed his reelection was in the public interest, he could do anything, and no quid pro quo was too corrupt, no damage to our national security too great. This was such an extreme view that even the president's other lawyers had to run away from it. So what are we left with? The House has proven the president's guilt. He tried to coerce an ally into helping him cheat by smearing his opponent. He betrayed our national security in order to do it when he withheld military aid to our ally and violated the law to do so. He covered it up, and he covers it up still. His continuing obstruction is a threat to the oversight and investigatory powers of the House and Senate, and if left unaddressed, will permanently and dangerously alter the balance of power. These undeniable facts required the President to retreat to his final defense. He's guilty as sin, but can't we just let the voters decide? He's guilty as sin, but why not let the voters clean up this mess? And here, to answer that question, we must look at the history of this presidency and to the character of this president, or lack of character, and ask, can we be confident that he will not continue to try to cheat in that very election? Can we be confident that Americans and not foreign powers will get to decide and that the president will shun any further foreign interference in our democratic affairs? And the short, plain, sad, incontestable answer is no, you can't. 
You can't trust this president to do the right thing, not for one minute, not for one election, not for the sake of our country. You just can't. He will not change, and you know it. In 2016, he invited foreign interference in our election. Hey, Russia, if you're listening, hack Hillary's emails, he said, and they did, immediately. And when the Russians started dumping them before the election, he made use of them in every conceivable way, touting the filthy lucre at campaign stops more than 100 times. When he was investigated, he did everything he could to obstruct justice, going so far as to fire the FBI director and try to fire the special counsel and ask the White House counsel to lie on his behalf. During the same campaign, while telling the country he had no business dealings with Russia, he was continuing to actively pursue the most lucrative deal of his life, a Trump Tower in the heart of Moscow. Six close associates of the president would be indicted or go to jail in connection with the president's campaign, Russia, and the effort to cover it up. On the day after that tragic chapter appeared to come to an end with Bob Mueller's testimony, Donald Trump was back on the phone, this time with another foreign power, Ukraine, and once again seeking foreign help with his election. Only this time, he had the full powers of the presidency at his disposal. This time, he could use coercion. This time, he could withhold aid from a nation whose soldiers were dying every week. This time, he believed he could do whatever he wanted under Article 2. And this time, when he was caught, he could make sure that the Justice Department would never investigate the matter. And they didn't. Donald Trump had no more Jeff Sessions. He had just the man he wanted in Bill Barr, a man whose view of the imperial presidency, a presidency in which the Department of Justice is little more than an extension of the White House counsel, is to do the president's bidding. Why was the Nixon impeachment bipartisan? Why was the Clinton impeachment much less so? And why is the gulf between the parties even greater today? It is not for the reason the president's lawyers would have you believe. Although they have claimed many times in many ways that the process in the House was flawed because we did not allow the president to control it, it was in reality little different than the process in prior impeachments. The circumstances, of course, were different. The Watergate investigation began in the Senate and it progressed before it got moving in the House. And there, of course, much of the investigative work had been done by the special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski. In Clinton, there was likewise an independent counsel that conducted a multi-year investigation that started with a real estate deal in Arkansas and ended with a blue dress. Nixon and Clinton, of course, played no role in those investigations before they moved to the House Judiciary Committee. But to the degree you can compare the process when it got to the Judiciary Committee in either prior and recent impeachments, it was largely the same as we have here. The president had the right to call witnesses, to ask questions, and chose not to. The House majorities in Nixon and Clinton did not cede their subpoena power to their minorities, and neither did we here. Although then, as now, we gave the minority the right to request subpoenas and to compel a vote, and they did. 
So the due process the House presided here, provided here, was essentially the same and in some ways even greater. Nevertheless, the President's counsel hopes that through sheer repetition, they can convert non-truth into truth. Do not let them. Every single court to hear Mr. Philbin's arguments has rejected them. The subpoenas are invalid, rejected by the McGann Court. They have absolute immunity, rejected by the McGann Court. Privilege may conceal crime or fraud, rejected by the court in Nixon. But if the process here was substantially the same, the facts of the president's misconduct were very different from one impeachment to the next. The Republican Party of Nixon's time broke into the DNC, and the president covered it up. Nixon, too, abused the power of his office to gain an unfair advantage over his opponent. But in Watergate, he never sought to coerce a foreign power to aid his reelection, nor did he sacrifice our national security in such a palpable and destructive way as withholding aid from an ally at war. And he certainly did not engage in the wholesale obstruction of Congress or justice that we have seen this president commit. The facts of the President Clinton's misconduct pale in comparison to Nixon and do not hold a candle to Donald Trump. Lying about an affair is morally wrong and when under oath it is a crime, but it had nothing to do with his duties in office. The process being the same, the facts of President Trump's misconduct being far more destructive than either past president, what then accounts for the disparate result in bipartisan support for his removal? What has changed? The short answer is, we have changed. The members of Congress have changed. For reasons as varied as the stars, the members of this body and ours in the House are now far more accepting of the most serious misconduct of a president as long as it is a president of one's own party. And that is a trend most dangerous for our country. Fifty years ago, no lawyer representing the president would have ever made the outlandish argument that if the president believes his corruption will serve to get him reelected, whether it is by coercing an ally to help him cheat or in any other form that he may not be impeached, that this is somehow a permissible use of his power. But here we are. The argument has been made, and some appear ready to accept it, and that is dangerous, for there is no limiting principle to that position. It must have come as a shock, a pleasant shock, to this president that our norms and institutions would prove to be so weak. The independence of the Justice Department and its formerly proud Office of Legal Counsel, now mere legal tools at the President's disposal, to investigate enemies or churn out helpful opinions not worth the paper they are written on. The FBI painted by a President as corrupt and disloyal. The intelligence community not to be trusted against the good counsel of Vladimir Putin, the press portrayed as enemies of the people, the daily attacks on the guardrails of our democracy so relentlessly assailed have made us numb and blind to the consequences. Does none of that matter anymore if he's the president of our party?
I hope and pray that we never have a president like Donald Trump in the Democratic Party, one that would betray the national interest and the country's security to help with his reelection. And I would hope to God that if we did, we would impeach him and Democrats would lead the way. But I suppose you never know just how difficult that is until you are confronted with it. But you, my friends, are confronted with it. You are confronted with that difficulty now, and you must not shrink from it. History will not be kind to Donald Trump. I think we all know that. Not because it will be written by never-Trumpers, but because whenever we have departed from the values of our nation, we have come to regret it. And that regret is written all over the pages of our history. If you find that the House has proved its case and still vote to acquit, your name will be tied to his with a cord of steel and for all of history. And when the president tries to coerce an ally to help him cheat in our elections and then covers it up, we must say enough. Enough. He has betrayed our national security, and he will do so again. He has compromised our elections, and he will do so again. You will not change him. You cannot constrain him. He is who he is. Truth matters little to him. What's right matters even less, and decency matters not at all. I do not ask you to convict him because truth or right or decency matters nothing to him but because we have proven our case and it matters to you. Truth matters to you. Right matters to you. You are decent. He is not who you are. In Federalist 55, James Madison wrote that there were certain qualities in human nature, qualities I believe like honesty, right, and decency, which should justify our confidence in self-government. He believed that we possessed sufficient virtue, that the chains of despotism were not necessary to restrain ourselves from destroying and devouring one another. It may be midnight in Washington, but the sun will rise again. I put my faith in the optimism of the founders. You should too. They gave us the tools to do the job, a remedy as powerful as the evil it was meant to constrain, impeachment. They meant it to be used rarely, but they put it in the Constitution for a reason, for a man who would sell out his country for a political favor, for a man who would threaten the integrity of our elections, for a man who would invite foreign interference in our affairs, for a man who would undermine our national security and that of our allies, for a man like Donald J. Trump. They gave you a remedy, and they meant for you to use it. They gave you an oath, and they meant for you to observe it. We have proven Donald Trump guilty. Now do impartial justice and convict him. I yield back. The majority leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, I ask unanimous consent. The Senate, sitting in a, as a court, court of impeachment, stand adjourned under the previous order. Without objection, so ordered. I suggest the absence of a quorum.
As the Senate closes its arguments for impeachment, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell asks for a quorum call, allowing senators time to make statements over the next two days. During that time, senators will sporadically come to the floor and make speeches before Tuesday's State of the Union and ultimately a final vote on Wednesday on the removal of the president from office. The impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, supervising producer Megan Adulski, creative producer Shar Dreyer, executive producer Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest, Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. Special thanks to Caitlin Riley and John Weiss. The impeachment will continue tomorrow. Until next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.